Are you a lawyer who needs CPD? I've teamed up with Law CPD to make that task easier for you. Law CPD provide premium CPD for Australian lawyers and they offer so much more than just another webinar. Law CPD's courses are online, on-demand, interactive learning. Law CPD are offering Doing Law Differently listeners $25 off of their first purchase using the code DLD25. There are over 100 courses across all competency areas, so visit lawcpd.com.au to find your next CPD course and make sure you use the code DLD25 for your $25 off. You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to the Doing Law Differently podcast and I'm your host, Lucy Dickens. My guest today is someone who has had a huge impact on the work that I do and the work that we do in the law firm where I work, Birmingham Ride, and that's Jordan Furlong, who is the principal at Law 21 based in Ottawa, Canada. Jordan is a legal market analyst and his role is all around delivering advice to law firms and legal organisations about the huge changes that are underway in the legal profession and the legal industry more broadly. He gives presentations all throughout the world about the future of law, but also about kind of the now of law. So what is it that's happening right now and what should law firms be doing about it? He's the author of one of my favourite books about the legal profession, and that's Law is a Buyer's Market, Building a Client-First Law Firm. And he also writes often about the changing legal world at his website, which you can find at law21.ca. Now, my interview with Jordan today is really in kind of three main areas, and those are the impact of COVID, what what changes has the legal profession seen as a result of the global pandemic and what changes are we likely to see? And as part of that conversation, we also talk about the need to focus on the now and what's happening right now, as opposed to just talking always about the future of law. We also talk about what do clients want from their lawyers? And we question this idea about the need to provide services faster, better and cheaper and really talk about whether or not that is what clients want and what we should be aiming for. And then we talk about lawyer formation, which is a term that Jordan uses to describe the formation of lawyers, but really it's about the education and a person's journey from their first kind of idea that I want to be a lawyer or a legal professional right up until when the point in time where that formation is complete and they've kind of achieved that objective, which is much broader, he says, than just going to university, sitting your exams, doing some practical legal experience or training, and then getting admitted. And that's a really interesting conversation. I've started to have similar conversations with others about this idea of lawyer formation, but I think Jordan's views are really, really interesting in the way that he's taking this really holistic view about what it takes to become a lawyer and how the profession and the the law schools and the the individuals who are going through that process need to change their mindset in terms of the way they think about it. Now, the last thing to tell you is that this podcast episode is also going to be up in video format on my website and on my YouTube channel. I don't normally do that or I don't often do that. I do on occasion, but this time I chose to. Jordan had this lovely photo in his background, on his, his virtual Zoom background, and I just thought it was beautiful. And I thought, why not share that with you? So if you want to watch the video version, you can find that on my website or YouTube and I'll link to it in the show notes as well as link to anywhere where you can find Jordan. 
Okay, so let's hit play. Here's Jordan Furlong on the Doing Law Differently podcast. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Law Group. For those seeking positive career change, Nexus Law Group offers senior lawyers the freedom of sole practice with all of the support and infrastructure you need so that you can focus on what you do best, practicing law. Contact Nexus to find out how you can take the next step towards a more rewarding legal career. Find out more on the Join Us page at nexuslawyers.com.au. Hello, Jordan. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be here today. I'm very pleased that you've given us your evening. Again, this is the second time you've given up your evening for me because you joined me quite recently on the launch of my new book, It's Time to Do Law Differently, and you spoke there and you gave me your evening then as well. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. This way, I'm not actually taking my son to hockey practice tonight, so it actually works out pretty well. Oh, don't blame (laughs) me for that. Well, don't tell him I'm responsible for that. Glad it works for you, though. That's good. And you're not out in the cold, so. Exactly. All good. <laughs> now, I wanted to start with a question that I'm being asked often at the moment, and I know you have some thoughts on, on this, so I'd be interested to hear your perspective. So the question I'm being asked is, why is now the time to do law differently? Obviously, that's the title of my new book. It's time to do law differently. So it's a pretty obvious question that people are asking me. But I listened to a podcast. You were in the interviewee. I listened earlier this morning. It was from earlier in the year. And you were talking there about moving the conversation from the future of law to the now of law. So I thought this would be a good question for you too. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think what it really represents for me, and I'm very reluctant to say opportunity, because when we talk about opportunities or new openings and so forth, I don't want to ever give the impression that a global pandemic was a good thing. You know, oh, but look at all the silver linings to this global catastrophe. They think that among the effects and the ramifications of the pandemic has been that a whole collection of forces, a whole collection of events that have been poised and waiting to happen for a long time, but have been held back for a variety of factors. It's like all the restraints gave way. It is not so much that suddenly we're all ready now. It's not that suddenly we're all ready now for uh, change to happen. I think we've been ready for quite some time. I think change is overripe. I think that we could have done the things we're doing now years ago. And I think that largely where we are seeing a rising tide of interest, a rising tide of of openness, of enthusiasm in a lot of ways among people in the law and lawyers especially, which is the most amazing and coolest part, is because of this pent-up demand. We've known for a while that the way we've been doing things is not sustainable, but we haven't either wanted to admit it to ourselves or maybe more accurately, we haven't wanted to face the consequences of having to change from an old system to a new system. And that's what we've had to do. So I think now is the time to do it. I think five years ago would have been a better time, but but now is great. I'll take now. Yeah, I like that comment. I kind of that's almost been my default response as well. It's now is the time, but you know, it's kind of been the time for a while. It's just, so if you haven't caught up yet, then you know it's like planting a tree. The best time to do to do that was you know however many years ago. But if you didn't do it then, then do it today. So it's kind of the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Do you think the, the legal profession is unique in this with the, with the impacts of COVID on, you know, working from home and use of technology and all those kinds of things that have been accelerated by the global pandemic? Are we unique or has everybody else, all the other professions and industries experienced the same thing? You know what, that's a great question because the temptation is to say, 
lawyers, because we are so recalcitrant and conservative and, oh, you know, I could never change, to assume that you know, this has been kind of a unique experience for us. But, you know, I actually think if you look more broadly amongst other professions and among other businesses, it actually is kind of remarkable how much other lines of work and other sectors have also experienced this, this sudden transformation. An example I'm going to give you is family medicine. We are very fortunate here. <clears throat> Number one, I'm fortunate in Canada to have national health coverage. We're also fortunate here where I live because we happen to have a, a family doctor who works in a clinic. So we would regularly go to make appointments, bring the kids in or whatever we need to go see the doctor for. And our doctor is a wonderful doctor and he's very attentive and he's very, always takes his time with you. And he's consistently 90 minutes late whenever you show yeah. up for yeah. an appointment. <laughs> and he kind of, you know, like literally the receptionist will say, you know what, call before you come so I can tell you how far behind he is. Mm -hmm. And now they are doing 80 to 90% of their appointments online. And you know what? We're not waiting 90 minutes anymore. We're barely waiting five or 10. And part of that is, and it's not so much that he is no longer giving the same kind of care and attention, but it is more indicative of the fact that many issues that people have can be resolved really quickly. Sometimes you just want to talk to the doctor for a few minutes. You don't want to have the whole rigmarole. But I do know that he and many of his other fellow doctors have never really been comfortable with that before. They've been like, oh, no, it's very important. You want to have the person there in front of you and you want to look him in the eye and touch him on the arm and see how they are. And, and not to deny any of that is true. But I think what we have found is that you don't have to do it that way. There are some occasions when that's what you need, but on other occasions, a call is fine. A video call is terrific, right? And I think in the office work world, I mean, the, the law is not the only profession and not the only business that suddenly has reams of empty office space just sitting gathering dust. I do think there's something to be said for the fact that we have been particularly crotchety about changing anything about the way we do things. And so in some respects, we probably are more, it's, it's a more arresting for us. But at the same time, I look at how quickly lawyers have adapted to working from home in most cases. I use the expression today like a fish to water. And I really think it's, it's been amazing. I mentioned that I've, I've been talking to law firms and managing partners and I say, what percentage of your workforce is in the office on any given day? And the median answer is 10 to 15%. So maybe we need to give ourselves more credit as lawyers. It is not so much that we are not adaptable. It is that we have declined to regard ourselves as adaptable or flexible or innovative. And I think when the rubber has hit the road, we have found, yeah, you know what? We can do this. We can actually manage this. And we should not need to wait for the next global catastrophe for us to try this again. Because you know what? Maybe, just maybe, we're pretty good at this. And maybe we could get even better. I remember I'm in Perth, WA. We haven't had lockdown like most of the rest of the world. We had a couple of weeks earlier in the year where we had to, where it was recommended that people work from home, but it was nothing like everyone else. So my experience has been quite different to yours and lots of other people who are listening to this. But I did see at the early, kind of earlier on in the year, the lawyers who were kind of clinging on, like, no, we won't have to work from home. We'll be fine. We'll be, we won't have to change a thing. And they're kind of like slowly, slowly coming to accept that, okay, we actually need to do something about this. In some cases, you know, right at the last minute when they were in other states being told, you know, lockdown, everyone has to work from home. Um, yeah. But I do think it's amazing how when they needed to, how quickly mm. that kind of change could happen. And it's pretty big change. I mean, we're a high-tech law firm here, but we still spent a few weeks so getting our, you know, changing our systems. What would this look like if this was to be delivered remotely? And it's a big task. 
Now that, and what's interesting about that too is because your firm is, because it's a smaller firm than like these global giants or whatever, or, or even large national firms in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or wherever, that one of the things that I kind of wonder about a little bit, maybe you can tell me because I'm curious, is how clients have responded to the fact that their lawyers are, suddenly their lawyers are on Zoom screens, which they never were willing to do before yeah. or so forth. Have you found that clients have had a real change in approach to it or have they remarked on what lawyers have been up to? I think it's not so much this is now what lawyers do, but just that this, like you say with the doctor's example, this is just what people expect now. And we were interviewing for a job the other week and someone was sick and he said, can we do the interview by, by Zoom? And I had a call with a client, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Normally they would have come in, it would have been a two hour drive and they said, can we just do this by phone? And it's just not that it, like you said, it wasn't impossible before. It just wasn't necessarily on people's radar. They didn't necessarily think we could, we don't need a meeting for this. We can do it by phone. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, you know, I just today here in Ontario, a uh, tweet comes across my timeline from the Attorney General of Ontario, the province where, where Ottawa is based. And he's uh, talking about all the changes to, uh, to, to the court system and the justice system in terms of online appearances and no longer need to have paper copies and so forth. But the real standout item for me was the big word permanent. He said these are permanent changes. And when the Attorney General says it's a permanent change, it's a permanent change. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really remarkable when you get right down to it. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is client expectations. And we kind of have this phrase that we throw around about how can we make the provision of legal services faster, better and cheaper? And the question I want to ask you is, is that what clients really want? Do they really want faster, better, cheaper? Is there more to it than that? That's very interesting. And and it's, you know what, that's a great challenge of a longstanding rubric or a longstanding phrase because we've, we've been hearing forever, you know, fa uh, faster, better, cheaper, pick two. And I think that is a very insightful question to say, okay, well, faster, better, cheaper sounds really cool, but is the client looking for that? And I think that kind of client-centered approach is particularly important. A variation on this, and I, and I forget where, I've, where I mentioned this recently, but you talk about Richard Susskind's uh, famous story about the head of Black & Decker walks into a meeting, holds up a drill and says, this is what we sell. And all the directors say, yes, of course it is. And he says, ha -ha, no, you're wrong. This is something we sell, holds up the board with a hole in it. And that itself, that was and remains, I think, a very insightful observation. But I also think it doesn't quite go far enough because in actuality, the client doesn't want a hole in the board because the hole in the board is itself simply a means to another end to get a hole in the board in order to stick a birdhouse into a plank. That's great. Oh, okay. You want a birdhouse? No, I don't want a birdhouse. I want a birdhouse in the backyard so that birds come and sit on the bird, and bird feeder and eat it. And what I want is to sit on my back step in my rocking chair with a little cup of tea in the morning sun, watching the birds in the bird feeder. That's why I'm buying a drill from you. And I think digging down, drilling down, if you will, that way <laughs> is really important. So yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think better, faster, cheaper is important to, and I don't mean to minimize them by saying it's small, but to a small group of clients, primarily in the corporate or institutional sector, and primarily in those 
institutional environments where data and tracking of metrics and every last uh, penny and pound is watched very closely. And for them, it's like, I need, I need really good legal services because I've got to be effective, but I'm also under a lot of pressure to reduce my costs, but I also need to get this done thing done quickly because I'm being measured on how on my turn, turnaround and my data and all sorts of different uh, categories. And so, yeah, I need that. That's great. However, a person who is going through a divorce and having to deal with this uh, horrible event in their lives, the derailing of all their hopes and their dreams, better, faster, cheaper is of limited interest to them. Again, what do they want? What's the birdhouse for them, right? The birdhouse is I want the pain to stop. The birdhouse is I want to know when I can see my kid again. The birdhouse is I want to know when I can start my life again. So I think that fundamentally for most clients, speaking here of a group of like hundreds of millions of people, individuals, billions of people, individuals, but if I may speak generally, I think they, whatever it is that they have come to see a lawyer about is something they want to get over, get past, get through, right? It's not a good thing and they want to be done with it. And they look upon us as the means by which it can be gotten past. So yeah, they want it done. They want it done as fast as possible, but not too fast. Because if it's too fast, they worry about quality. They want it to be done as cheaply as possible, but not too cheaply. Because then they figured, well, what am I really paying for here? So, um, so I think that's a really good point, and it's something that lawyers should always keep in mind. What is the client's goal? What is the outcome that we're seeking for them? And if you can focus on that, then I think things get much easier. And the best part is that. Although this is an incredibly important part of being a lawyer, being an effective lawyer, figuring this out is immensely easy. It involves sitting down, asking the client a series of questions, and then closing your mouth and listening. Yeah. That last part's hard for a lot of lawyers, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just ask them. basically it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting, this faster, better, cheaper, because, well, firstly, I guess, what is better anyway and who's defining that? And is that our better or is that better for the client or better for the profession or the community? Or what does that really mean? But I think to an extent, if we kind of just generalize and we say, well, we need to make our services faster, better and cheaper... I think we then need to look at what for and if things are taking us less time and we can provide the service more cheaply instead of just cutting costs or becoming the low cost provider, whatever it might be, we then say, well, if we can deliver this service faster, better and cheaper, what do we do with the difference and how can we then use that spare time or that spare money to then provide a better experience or value add in some way to the service that we're delivering? Yeah. I think that's really important. And that savings or that improvement is, <laughs> it's funny how I've on 15 years plus uh, in the, in this line of work, uh, writing about the law and analyzing and so forth. And I've had a bit of an education and evolution because early on I would say, well, look, if you introduce more efficiencies into your practice, into your business, if you use automation, if you use process improvement or project management, well, you can get the job done faster and less expensively. And you will save money and you'll make more money. And you can use that money to hire more people, to invest in more technology, to lower your rates. (laughs) Silly, silly me. Because of course, about the last 20, 30 years of uh, late capitalism have shown us is that no, that money goes right into owner's pockets as pure profit. And then the process begins again. That was great. Hey, wonderful. You made me increase my profits 18%. Well done. Do it again. (laughs) Yeah. And... Yeah. So I think it's a good point. I don't mean to cast aspersions on better, faster, cheaper as a business imperative, as as a way to kind of run your own operations. Of course, we always want to be looking for improvements in all feasible dimensions. But I think the problem becomes, yes, exactly. Does Is faster, better, cheaper what we're selling 
to people out in the market, maybe it is, if that's what they care about, is it the message we're sending to our clients in our meetings with them and in our retainer letter and in our conversations? Well, possibly, probably not. But is it something that we are saying internally as a mentor to say, we take pride here in not just doing a job really well, but not just doing a great job, but doing the job as well as it can reasonably be done in all dimensions. And I think that's an element we haven't thought about much in law. I think we could stand to think more about it. One of the things that you're starting to talk more about or to move kind of your work more into is this idea of what I think you're calling lawyer formation process. I haven't heard anyone else talk about it in that way. So I'm kind of giving you credit for coining that. Whether you did or not, there you go. I say you did. So this lawyer formation process, (laughs) which I like the term because it's broader than what we typically hear of, which is we need to change law schools. You're already, just from the way you describe this concept, saying, well, this isn't about law schools. This is about what is the process for lawyer formation. So what's your thinking about that at the moment? Thanks. Yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know that I can take credit for coining it. I will say (laughs) that when I first began writing about lawyer formation, I actually Googled the topic, Googled the subject, like in, you know, quotes, uh, because I said, okay, well, I need to source this, right? You know, and find out. I was like, okay, I don't think hardly anybody's talking about this. Okay, cool. I'll run with it. (laughs) The classic distinction between, you know, that reminds me of the classic distinction between the way a corporation looks at something and the way lawyers look at something. So the corporate board of directors, someone comes and says, boss, I got a great idea for a new product. And the boss says, is anybody else doing it? He says, no. Hey, fantastic. See, a law school group. Someone comes in, the managing partner. I got a great idea for a new project. Anybody else doing it? No. Ooh, ooh I don't know. Or maybe that's not such so good. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so for me, lawyer formation is a term that I developed because I wanted to find a way to describe what seemed to me to be the, the full spectrum or the arc by which a person uh, starts from you can go back almost as far as you want, but from almost the first day they think, ah, law. Oh, okay, that's something, right? The first day they they think about being a lawyer, or maybe if we want to be more practical terms, maybe the, the process when, when they start applying to law school or in those jurisdictions where law school is not necessary, they start the entry process. It starts then and it continues at least until the day when the lawyer is a confident, competent independent professional, someone who not only is ready in the regulatory sense to go out and serve clients and solve their problems and build relationships, but feels ready and feels confident. And I think that's an important distinction because one of the points that I made in a report that I I wrote recently was we credential lawyers too early. We say to a lawyer, congratulations, you're a lawyer, you're called to the bar or you're admitted to practice, go forth and practice law. And the lawyer's like, hey, that's great, that's awesome. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not even imposter syndrome, right? Imposter syndrome is unqualified, but I don't really feel like it. This is actually, you're just really not qualified to do more than the absolute essential things that the bar admission course taught you to do. So lawyer formation is about rethinking, reconfiguring and rebuilding this entire process and say, what are we trying to accomplish? We want to bring a person, a human being from where I'd like to be a lawyer to I'm a lawyer and I'm ready to roll and I'm ready to do all these things because the process that we've have in place is very fragmented. It's very fractured and it's not centered on the person themselves. The way I described it was it's like a bucket brigade, you know, law school gets you. Okay. We'll do something to you for three years. Over you go to the bar admission people. Okay. Now we'll work on you. Over you go to the regulator and, and so on. And then the law firm gets you and then somebody else gets you. And at the end, you're like this Frankenstein monster of hearts stuck together in different places but you're not one whole unified person. You, you feel kind of put together 
and you don't feel like you're really together. So that's a very long roundabout way of saying, yeah, it is more than law school. It is really about the process by which somebody becomes a lawyer and then saying, how do we do that as well as we feasibly can in a ways that will not only ensure that at the end of the process, we have the outcome that we're all agreed we're looking for, but that during the pro and number one, the process is as reasonably fast and as reasonably efficient as we can make it. Let's not reinvent wheels. Let's not make someone do something multiple times like in the US, right? You do a law school degree, three years time. And then at the end of it, you totally take a bar exam, which is essentially law school condensed into seven hours. And it's like, what is the point of that? right? So no more of the redundancies, no more of the yawning gaps in development. Let's rationalize it. Let's make it smooth. Let's make it unified, unitary, and focused on the individual. Human-centered lawyer development, human-centered lawyer formation. That's what I would like to see more. The point you've mentioned about the mindset around, okay, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, or the difference between getting a practicing certificate and then feeling like you're competent and able to act in that professional capacity. I remember that feeling. I remember the point where I said, I remember having a conversation with my boss, Michael, saying, you know, I've been working in this business for a while and I've been admitted for a while, but something's changed in me now and I feel different and I feel that responsibility and I get it and I kind of see things in a different way. And I, since going through that myself, we hire lots of juniors and graduates in this business and I talk to them about it. And they then say to me, I get it now. I thought I knew what I was doing. And then I realized that actually I didn't have a clue, but now something's shifted in me. And I, I it's like, it's like I'm formed. Okay. I'm a lawyer now. I find it really interesting that you talk about that because I, I see it. I've experienced it and I see it. That's great. And, and I'm really glad that you're doing that with them as well, because so often when people come into firms or in any kind of their, their first legal workspace environment and deer in the headlights, right? Or, or not even deer in the headlights. It's it's almost like when, you know, the light comes on, the rabbit is in the background and, and the garden is like, they're looking at me, they're looking at me, what's going on? And they're so afraid to say anything and they're so unsure of themselves. And it's so important to do what you're doing to reach out and say, hey, listen, we've all been there. We have all been exactly where you are and we got here and we're okay, and you're going to be okay too. Do not underestimate the value and impact of doing that. I think that it is just so important. It's so It's such an important element of formation. And actually, it, it clicked something for me I wanted to mention. So I wrote a report for a law society here in Canada about lawyer licensing and formation. And one of the things I was working on was a sense of supervised practice, because most jurisdictions require some element of supervised practice for a period of time, anywhere from nine to 18 months before it's part of your bar admission process. So I went looking up and I found a book written by an Australian professor, Michael McNamara. He's based at, I think, Flinders University, if I'm not mistaken. And it's called Supervision in the Legal Profession. It was just released this year. And I read it and I was like, wow, this is perfect. This is right on the nose. Because one of the points he made was supervision, like actual real professional supervision has three elements, normative, formative, and I'm going to go forget the third one. <laughs> I knew it always happens. I always forget the third one. It'll come to me eventually. But essentially, one element of supervision is make sure the work's getting done properly, make sure that the person who's learning is not messing up, is not ruining something, and correct them whenever they go wrong. We got that down pat. Lawyers are real good at that. Lawyers are the red pen specialists. Lawyers are the, oh, well, no, no, no. That's, you did five separate things wrong here. Let's talk about them, okay? What we don't do is we don't help to form the person uh, as a whole individual. We don't look at the more holistic elements. 
And the other element of it is we don't help them the transition. It's a hard transition to go from learning about something in the abstract to actually doing it. It's incredibly stressful in every dimension. And I think that what Professor McNamara's work really points out is it's a tripartite process, but we've only ever done one piece of it. And we need to do the other two. What you described is exactly what uh, law firms and lawyers should be doing for their juniors. Mentor them, help them to understand, help them to be human. Allow them to be human and to be not sure and to and to work stuff out and to talk about things you're not sure about because it, it's okay, right? We've all been there and we all got through it. Some of that comes down to even things like the professional skills. How do you manage client expectations, even managing workloads, stress levels, like those kind of things that no one teaches you. You just kind of have to pick up and not everybody picks up or is as capable of that. Those things aren't as innate in some people as they are in others. And yeah, like you say, I see that too. One of the other aspects of lawyer formation, to use your term, is the business skills, the skills Mm. necessary to run a business because law firms are businesses. And I think this is something that law schools or college of law or kind of that, the formation process needs to have more of an emphasis on. But the question I have, and I don't know the answer to this yet, is are students ready for this at the time when they're studying? Do they really understand or comprehend the need to have this broader skill set? Or maybe that's our job to teach them that you do need to have this broader skill set. I don't know. It's a really good question. I I think that within the traditional law school experience, it's extremely hard to introduce an element of business skills uh, and not even the running of a business because not every new graduate is going to go and run a business or even work in a business environment, but to learn the other elements of professional existence, which, you know, client relations and collaboration and communication and so forth. And again, earlier in this business, I probably would have said, yeah, absolutely. Law school should be teaching these sorts of issues and presenting them. But no, not so sure, to be honest with you. I think law schools are what they are. It's fine to say, well, law schools should be teaching A, B, C, D, E, and F. And it's like, well, then it's not going to be a law school anymore. It's going to be something different. And maybe we should go out there and invent or develop or incentivize the development of something completely different, a complete legal professional training academy. Sure, that's fine. It's going to take about 10, 15 years to get there and a lot of money, but sure, you know, fill your boots. But I think that likelier is, and by no means am I saying the traditional legal education is is the bee's knees because it's not. It really should be different in a lot of ways. But the business skills and the exposure to being able to either run a practice or relate to clients or to deliver on expectations, all these sorts of things that are expected of us in the working world, no matter what we're doing. For me, fundamentally, that is something that, although it should begin in very broad strokes in law school, it has to be the lawyer licensing process where that matters, Mm -hmm. because it is a regulator's job fundamentally to make sure that the lawyers that they license to practice law can do so in a manner that is competent from the perspective of the person who is receiving those services, which comes down to communication, which comes down to confidentiality and reliability of of, of appearance and, and all these sorts of things. I don't have this fully formed yet, but I'm toying with this idea of saying, you know where the entire lawyer formation process should begin? I shouldn't be in law school. We talk about you three years of law school, then you do supervised practice experience, then you graduate. And I'm saying, you know what? Do the practice thing first. Before your first day of law school, spend a month or two months or three months in a law firm environment, shadow a lawyer, follow that person around, watch what they're doing, see all the ways in which a lawyer takes place. And then with that experiential grounding, 
then go into law school and start learning about this stuff. And it's going to make more sense, mm-hmm. right? Just like it's easier to visualize. If you're an architect, it's easier to visualize what the finished house is going to look like if you've actually seen the Same house one. being built. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then go and start uh, developing yeah. what plans would look like. So we don't have to be that extreme necessarily. It could be that maybe you've got a month or two months of absolute essential legal principles, right? You know, like a law school boiled down to a month, which, you know, again, if the Americans could do it in a bar exam, we can do it too. But I think that kind of approach is what we want to think about, a more integrative approach yeah. to yeah. say, let's learn both the principles. I don't want to say theory because in our theory, the principles and the fundamental legal knowledge and the process of reasoning at the same time as we learn what it's like to greet a client who's in distress, what it's like to document all the work that you've done for billing purposes or whatever the case might be. I think that's maybe a better approach for us to consider. Yeah, and that's what we do at this firm. This firm has a law clerkship program where we hire law students who to come and work here on a permanent part-time basis while they study, they finish their degree. And we see that, right? So we see... And I did this. This is how I started my career. I was doing at work what I was learning about in lectures. And so I could see how this theory of law applied in real life. And I think doing that gives you a different perspective. But I guess my perspective on your idea is that they don't need to be piecemeal. We don't need to do university and then some months in in a law firm and then go back to uni. I think we could do them side by side and that that would provide for a really integrated lawyer formation process. But that requires law firms to be willing to invest in their staff because it is an investment and it's a business expense when you're hiring people to do (laughs) in that kind of role. Well, but that's but you hit the nail on the head right there, right? Because you talk about paradigm shifts are so rare. Right? True paradigm shifts are so rare and they're really hard to do because as you know, a paradigm shift is when suddenly all of your thinking about an issue just flips around. It's like, oh, I've never thought about it that way before. Yeah. When I'm talking to law firms and I talk about brand new lawyers and associates, and I start cons- talking to them not as a source of profit, but as a source of loss. <laughs> it is really like they're looking at me. I don't know what language you're speaking. Uh, it sounds like English, but I, uh, right? Because again, you stop and you think about it. You're a first year associate at your average mid-sized to large firm. And the expectation is that you're going to bill about 1,000, 1,500, if you're in a crazy big firm, 2,000 hours of work, right? Not just actually work work, you're going to bill it two clients in your first year as a lawyer. That's insane. When you stop and think about it, why are we expecting anybody to do that? I wrote an article years ago, which I really hoped would catch on and never did, called a Revenue Neutral Associate. I said, we should rethink law firm associates so that they are break-even propositions, right? You know, and maybe in your very first year, you're going to maybe bill 100 hours. And you know what? You're not going to make the insane starting salaries that a lot of big firms seem to spend, right? You're going to make more than minimum wage, but you know, you'll be overpaid for the value that you're producing, but that's fine because it's an expense. To train someone is an expense. It is astonishing how law firms have gotten accustomed to the idea that training someone is a profit opportunity. (laughs) And that is how we have done it for decades in the law. And trying to persuade law firms to think about it differently is just so difficult. It's like you stare at the picture of the young lady. It's like, can you see the old woman there? No, no idea. Don't what you're talking about. But that's what we need to do. We need to invest in the development of our legal talent. And I don't really care offhand who does the investment. I don't really care in a way who pays for it. I think law firms are as good as any because they got the most money for this sort of thing. And because they're the ones who will benefit from the investment. Here's the other thing that gets me. 
law firms will say, well, what's the point with a new associate? You know, you're going to lose uh, half of them before they get to their second year and why spend all this money on them and so forth. And like, have you ever stopped to think about why you're losing so many associates before the end of the second year? Do you think it's just an immutable law of nature that they wander away like little robins jumping out of the nest? It's not. If you invested in them, if you trained them, if you mentored, if you developed them in that tripartite sense, if you helped them become more confident and competent and, and gave them a good working space, I mean, they wouldn't leave if you tried, right? They'd be like, no, no, don't make me go. Right? <laughs> so it's a completely different approach to developing talent. And I really hope it catches on at some point because we desperately need it. Yeah, it's a different approach for law firms and, you know, people who are training lawyers, but it's a different approach for people who are graduating from law school as well, because there is still this expectation that I finish uni and I get admitted as a lawyer or I'm a graduate, whatever it might be. And, you know, I get paid a lot of money and I work in this, there's still this, this kind of Hollywood mm-hmm. feel about what is, yeah. what's it like to be a lawyer. So we need to deal with that as well and make sure that graduates aren't coming out expecting this fancy office and not so much where they're working. That's not what it's about, but it's more, I guess, about the high salary because we can only afford that if you're, like you say, billing bringing in lots of money in your first year and instead for them to think about this as the start of my career and themselves understand the importance of that training and those kinds of things. Absolutely right. Yeah. Expectations just critically. Better, smarter expectations across the board. Absolutely. Mm. The question that I like to finish these podcast interviews on feels like a bit of an odd question because I feel like you've been giving us this throughout the whole interview, but let's just go with it anyway. The question is, what advice would you give to someone who wants to do law differently? That's a good one. Because again, where to begin? For me, before you start reading resources and materials, such as your excellent book, or talk to the people and the innovators and people who have blazed this trail themselves, and before you've kind of investigated what are the ways in which you know law could be done in some kind of different way, all of which are important and necessary, but I feel like they're later down the, down the road. For me, it starts in here and it starts down here. What is your purpose as a lawyer? What do you want to accomplish? Or put it in the bluntest terms possible, why are you here? Because in a way, every day, the market is asking that question of every lawyer, right? Why are you here? Right? Because the market doesn't want you there. <laughs> That's one of the great insights I got from Seth Godin years ago. The market wants you to fail. The market is headwinds. And the market will be perfectly happy if you peel away and go somewhere else. And in order to make sure that doesn't happen, you need to be grounded and you need to be anchored. And the place you want to be anchored in is, why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I hoping to accomplish? And I completely get that for your average new lawyer, as you said, my purpose is to get a job. My purpose is to pay down my debts. My purpose is this, this. I get that. But if you are addressing yourself to the question of how can I do this differently? How can I do this in a better sense? Then I think the question is, well, why? Why do you want to do law differently? Why do you want to do a lot better? What is it about law right now that you see or that you have heard about or that you have practiced yourself personally that leaves you unsatisfied, that leaves clients unsatisfied, that seems to leave society in general unsatisfied? What's wrong with it? And why do you want it to be better? Going back to Richard Susskind, he used to say to audiences, do you think in 100 years the practice of law is going to be different? And they say, of course it is. And he said, how about in, uh, in five years? Oh, no, no, not at all. He says, okay, but we're agreed. <laughs> we're agreed it's going to change. The question is how long it's going to take. In a similar way, if you want to do law differently, think about what does different, better law look like to you? Paint a picture of it. Tell a story. That's one of those, those old exercises of, you know, in a blue sky sense, what would an ideal law practice look like? 
And for me, the purpose of that is not to sketch out the perfect law podcast. Yes, that's where I'm going. That's Nirvana. Woo, I'm off. It's more along the lines of why is that good? Why do you like that? What is it about that that inspires you, right? We talked earlier, but drill down with the client, drill down, get past the drill, get past the board, get to the sipping tea, looking at the birds, right? That's the ultimate end goal for the client outcome. What's your outcome? What's for you sitting with a cup of tea, looking at the birds, right? As a lawyer. So for me, everything that I have read and written and worked on about law firm culture and lawyer satisfaction, fulfillment comes back to two things. It comes back to purpose and values. What is your purpose as a lawyer? What are your values as a lawyer? If you need to be absolutely crystal clear about each of those, and you need to be completely committed to each of those. And if it helps to write them out, write them out. If it helps to put them in a big eight by 11 piece of paper and frame it to stick it on the wall, that's good too. If it's good to circulate among everybody else, you know, it says, you know what, this is our purpose. This is our values. This is why we do this. And when you know that, and when you contrast the purpose and the values you hope to spend your life achieving and honoring and promoting and compare that to the way law is done today, then you have your answer of, and this is how I'm going to do law differently. I'm going to get from here to there. How I do it, in a way, it's not even all that important. There's a hundred ways. There's a thousand ways that you can go about getting there. The, the paths aren't as important as why you want to do it. Is your heart in it? Is your head in it? And if your heart and your head, your purpose and values are in it, you're going to succeed. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever you're going to succeed. Yeah, because that's going to be the motivator, isn't it? Your personal values. And I like that you bring it back to the individual because that's I think that's what it's all about. Thank you, Jordan, for the interview and for all your support of my book. I said to you before we hit record that in a I felt brave. I was sending my book out for reviews and I thought, <laughs> oh, I haven't met Jordan before, but I'll send it to him. What's the worst that could happen? He'll just ignore me or say no. But you definitely didn't do that. You sent me some really supportive feedback and your review ended up on the front cover of my book and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you today. Take care. That's all for today's episode of the Doing Law Differently podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to do law differently and you're looking for some guidance and inspiration to help you along the way, then get your hands on my book. It's time to do law differently, how to reshape your firm and regain your life. You can get it on my website, lucydickens.com.au forward slash book or on Amazon or Booktopia where you'll also find the ebook versions too. Don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast and be sure to tell your friends and let other people know too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.